Matthew chapter 6, and we are starting at verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. And this is our, our third and final week looking at the Lord's Prayer together, which means it is time to address the really big question the one that's probably been bothering you for the last three weeks. Where is the kingdom and the power and the glory be yours forever and ever? Amen. Where is it? It's not here. It's really upsetting that it's not here in Matthew 6. The answer is, uh, it looks a little bit like a prayer that's in 1 Chronicles 29. Um, And it seems as if the early Christians thought, there's a great way to finish praying the Lord's Prayer because Jesus seems to break off and comment on things that he said in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's very appropriate, very helpful, very biblical. We can relax and keep using those lines, so I don't think you need to worry about it. Footnote A at the bottom of the, the page tells you that they show up in later manuscripts of Matthew, probably added around about the second century or something. So we're just going to stick to the lines that we know Jesus taught uh, himself, although the others are perfectly helpful too. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been teaching us to pray through this wonderful prayer over these last three weeks, and we we so need that. We so need to be shown how wonderful it is to be able to speak to you, uh, why it is that we can, how we can, what kinds of things to say to you, what you long to hear from us. Please uh, continue to teach us, Lord, as we look at these last requests of the Lord's Prayer, focusing on on our needs and speaking to you about them, please show us more how to speak to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at the first three requests of the Lord's Prayer. This week we're in the last three. Uh, Just to remind you, if we could uh, stick the slide on uh, the screen that we had last week. Uh, The difference between the two halves is very clear, very obvious. In the first half, it's about our our Father's concerns. We say, hallowed be your name, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then in the second half, the language changes, and it's full of uh, us and our and we. Uh, This is all about our needs, bringing our needs to our Father in heaven. You don't have to pray it this way round. Lots of prayers in the Bible begin with an expression of our need before God. Uh, but the Lord's Prayer teaches us to include, even to prioritize, our Father's concerns, his name, his kingdom, his will. Those things are what history is really all about. 
what the universe is all about, what the meaning of life is, what the reason you and I exist. God's purposes encapsulates uh, the meaning and purpose of our lives. And so then when we come to him with our own needs, we'll be shaped by that grand purpose, that grand reason why we're here and seek to be in line with it. So we're talking tonight about depending on God, coming to him and trusting him with what we need most. What do we need most? Well, Jesus gives us these three requests to come before our Father with, which really summarize all the things that that we could and should legitimately ask for. And I've summarized it even further on your sheet. Uh, Provision, pardon, protection. Those three things. Uh, We'll stick with those headings, although after producing the handout, I came up with some that I wasn't sure if I liked more. Some of you might like these more. Um, So jot these down if they work for you. Feed us, forgive us, and defend us. It almost works. Nearly three Fs, but in one of them, the Fs in the wrong place. Um, Feed us, forgive us, defend us. So here we go. Uh, Need number one in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. A prayer for provision. Lord, please... Feed us. Why bread? Uh, why, why the focus on bread in this verse? Uh, when God's people were wandering in the desert in the Old Testament, they, uh, they summed up their lack of general provisions by saying, we have no bread. And God responded by saying, I will rain bread from heaven onto you and promising a land where bread would never be scarce. Bread stands, biblically, for our most basic needs. For things like food and drink and shelter and clothing. Uh, One list of our most basic human needs that I I read included uh, heating. That was written by a Scottish pastor, so that's understandable. Um, But this request in the Lord's Prayer says, ask God for these things every day. Because you are utterly, utterly dependent on his provision of these most basic needs. In some ways, that dependence on God was more obvious in Bible times with a mostly subsistence economy. Most people would grow their own dinner or at least buy and sell their own dinner in their own village. Uh, We tend to be quite a lot of levels removed from growing our own food. In London, about the closest you get is a a plant on the windowsill that might occasionally produce a tomato or a pepper or something like that or or going down to the local park and picking blackberries for yourself. And we feel very close to the earth when we do things like that. but for the rest of the time, we, uh, we go to Sainsbury's or, or to Sainsbury's.com and just sit there clicking away on things that we want. And then a nice man with a van comes and brings it all nicely packaged into our kitchen. And then if it needs cooking, you don't have to go and uh, forage for logs or dig up some coal. You just press a button and there's gas or electricity and it sorts out the heating for you. Uh, aren't we clever? Aren't we sophisticated? Uh, and that, that many-layered process can blind us to how constantly and uh, utterly dependent we are on God, on his provision for all that we need. Think how many steps are involved in getting a jar of pasta sauce into your cupboard from its basic ingredients in the ground. And now think of all the, the things that could stop it getting to your cupboard. Quite a lot of steps at which that could be prevented. And occasionally we're reminded of just how dependent we are, and and it can be a bit of a shock. Think of whenever the the fuel lorry drivers go on strike, and there's mad panic, and everyone goes out and panic buys not just petrol, but everything else from the supermarkets, because they're afraid they might never be able to leave their house again. And suddenly we don't feel quite so self-sufficient. A couple of weeks after our 
our daughter Erin was born in April this year. Maybe you remember there was a, a story in the press of somebody in the UK who was buying up all the supplies of baby milk powder and selling them abroad for, for profit. And there was a quite serious shortage for a time in the UK. And uh, uh, we had a bit left, but Tree uh, saw a, a late-night news report that freaked her out a bit. And so I got dispatched at almost midnight to go to the 24-hour supermarket to find some. And three 24-hour supermarkets later, I finally managed to, to find what we needed. Uh, it's a, just another reminder of how utterly dependent we are on provision, on God's provision. What do you have that you did not receive? That is a question Paul asks the the Corinthian church in his letter to them. But the Lord's Prayer provokes that question to us. And the answer is nothing. We have nothing that we didn't receive. How far can we extend this list of basic needs uh, in... uh, uh, and the Lord's Prayer. In uh, 1843, there was a, an American uh, psychologist called Abraham Maslow who came up with what he called a hierarchy of needs, uh, which he regarded as basic human needs, starting with our basic physiological needs for food and shelter and sleep, and then a layer up needs for uh, safety and security, and then relational needs, love, belonging, and then esteem needs, self-respect, self-care, and then at the top, right at the top, he puts uh, self-actualization, being able to fulfill your potential and exercise your abilities in the world. And my reflection on that list is, uh, in many ways, a lot of those things are, are genuine human needs, but I, I think it starts in the right place and then goes in the wrong direction. At the top shouldn't be my priorities, being who I want to be and doing what I want to do. If the Lord's Prayer teaches us anything, that God's priorities are front and center, Uh, making the most of the opportunities that God has given to hallow his name and grow his kingdom and do his will. These are all part of our our basic needs. But we can pray for all of these things. They they are all basic human needs. Let's pause on that for a second. Isn't it brilliant, fantastic, to know that God cares for those needs? Isn't that fantastic? That he invites us to talk to him about them, to bring our needs to him. As 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety onto him because he cares for you. When we're in physical or emotional or relational need, talk to your father. He knows, he cares. He loves to hear and to answer our prayers. Now, of course, there are dangers here. There's twin dangers, actually. Uh, We could... Uh, in terms of thinking through our needs, we could idolize wealth, think we need more than we actually do, or we could idolize poverty on the other end of the extreme. Uh, God knows that. In the background of the Lord's Prayer is a proverb from the Old Testament. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 say this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I, m- I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. People call that the the middle class proverb. Neither too poor, neither too rich. Middle class is ideal. Um, That's not what it's about. Uh, It is possible to over-glamorize poverty, to over-spiritualize it, as if to be spiritually mature is basically to make yourself destitute. I'm guessing that's not our chief problem here. Uh, 
we may sometimes slip into thinking that God is not interested in our physical needs, and that would be uh, a mistake. That's not true, as we've said. The Bible doesn't hold up a sort of monastic asceticism as the ideal Christian life. But our problem is more likely to be an obsession with uh, wealth and food and clothing in the wrong sense. Later on in uh, Matthew 6, after the Lord's Prayer, verse 25, Jesus says, Is not life more important than food? And isn't the body more important than clothes? In other words, don't eat to live. No, wrong way around. Don't live to eat. Sorry, that was completely gone wrong, isn't it? Don't live to eat. Eat to live. That's what I'm trying to say. It's great to enjoy food. The Bible does... uh, uh, commend enjoyment of the good things. It doesn't forbid us from the enjoyment of things like good food and good health and good friendship and physical fitness and marriage and sex and the beauty of nature around us. It encourages us to enjoy those things and give thanks to them, but we're not to chase after them as if there are reason for living. Imagine how God feels when one of us stares at our fridge packed with food, but the particular thing you really wanted has run out. And you stand there and mutter, there's nothing to eat in this house. Or when you look at your wardrobe full of clothes and say, oh, I've got nothing to wear. When God has given us more than most people in this world, what should our response be? Gratitude, generosity. Now look, um, a pressing question this week. The events uh, for the Fuller family And uh, many other events from time to time in our our lives throw up a very serious question about this. What if we pray and then our felt needs are not met? What if we pray and and what we prayed for feels like a basic need, feels like a, a right thing for God to grant, and then God doesn't grant that request? This week does feel a bit like that for for many of us who've been praying. Well, remember... Our Father knows our needs much, much better than we do. Uh, Verse 8, just before uh, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And as our Father in heaven, he takes everything into account, past, present, future, in a way that we can't. We can't even begin to. We tend to obsess with our obvious physical needs, and we may... uh, very easily mistake what is the, the right thing to ask for. God may well prioritize our spiritual needs, and we'll come to those in just a moment. And sometimes it's so hard to trust him, to know what we need more than we do. But God sees what, what we don't see. Uh, Matt told me on Friday that it is a huge comfort to be able to speak to his Father in heaven about their sorrow right now. And to trust, even through many tears over these last few days, that God knows best that he will do the right thing, even if the right thing is unfathomable to us here and now. He knows our needs. He really does. He meets them in his own way. And one day, when we have a perspective from glory that can see everything, we'll see that his way was the best way painful as it can be in the meantime. Pray for provision, but trust God to provide in his own way. Let's move on to the second request, uh, a request for pardon 
asking God to forgive us. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, we're much more than physical beings. We have relational needs in two dimensions, uh, uh, two very important dimensions, vertical and horizontal. Vertically, uh, we need to be in good relationship with God, our Father in heaven. And horizontally, in relationship with uh, each other as fellow human beings. And in both of those relational dimensions, vertical and horizontal, what we need first and foremost is forgiveness. People in the Bible who encounter God feel suddenly overwhelmed by their own sinfulness. Suddenly aware that God is the one who knows everything, who, who sees our hearts, who sees what we do both in public and private, who hears our most intimate or offhand conversations, who hears your internal monologue all the time as you talk to yourself in your most bitter moments, your most selfish or tempted or jealous moments. God knows all of that. And to deal with that sin, that broken relationship between us and God, we need his forgiveness. We can't do anything about it ourselves that will undo our sin. The Lord's Prayer doesn't give us a, a sort of personal aim or objective to reach which will deal with our sin. It just says we have a need, a huge need, and that is forgiveness. Only God can forgive. Imagine I went out tonight and uh, kicked Matt Banks' car. No reason why I'd do that. Uh, and put a huge dent in it and... Uh, and then went to uh, Hugh uh, and said, Hugh, you're the senior elder of the church. Can you forgive me for, for, for kicking Matt Banks' car? I hope Hugh wouldn't say, well, yes, of course, of course. Uh, all is forgiven. Go your way and have a wonderful evening. I hope he'd say, mate, that's between, between you and Matt. You need to go and have a conversation with Banksy. We've got to receive our forgiveness from God. There isn't anyone else or any other way that we can receive that forgiveness. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, the the version uh, Luke uh, accounts, uh, the normal word for sin in the Bible is used there. But in Matthew, Jesus uses the word debt. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who uh, are our debtors. And it gives us a very vivid picture of the problem. Uh, We know how it works. Debt can be a, a crippling thing. Everything we spend shows up in our statement and has to be paid for somehow. And if we can't pay... Then the lawyers will get involved, and then the bailiffs will get involved. And back in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. When the bailiffs came for you, if your possessions were not enough to pay for your debt, then you would be sold. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story about exactly that. A man who owes his master millions of pounds in today's money, and he can't pay completely unable to pay. And so the order goes out that this man and his wife and his children be sold into slavery. That is the picture. Sin is like that. With our wrong actions and thoughts and words, we accumulate debt in this picture every day. And it is a crippling debt that none of us has a hope of paying. And there is nothing that we can do except plead for mercy, plead for forgiveness. That's exactly what the man in uh, the story in Matthew 18 does. He begs his master for mercy and and then wonderfully, indescribably wonderfully, his master just cancels the debt, wipes it out in one transaction, like like getting an etch-a-sketch and just shaking it. It's gone, just like that. 
or more biblical pictures. Um, uh, sin moved as far as the east is from the west, swept away like a cloud, trodden underfoot. The Bible's got much better pictures. Hurled into the depths of the sea. Debt cancelled. This is our greatest spiritual and relational need. And Jesus says, keep praying for forgiveness every day. You are forgiven if you trust in him. But you keep sinning. We all do. So keep asking. Don't presume. Don't ever think that a Christian ought to move on from asking their father for, for forgiveness. We should daily come to him gratefully. But still asking, still dependent on him. Our relationship with God has many, many dimensions besides coming to him with our sin and asking for forgiveness. We've got quite a long way through the Lord's Prayer before we get to this request. Many other dimensions to our relationship with God. But this side of heaven, we will need this forgiveness every day of our lives. So keep coming back to him for it. Now, at this point, I would love to move on to the next request. It would be nice to do that. But we can't. Because there's another bit to the sentence. There's a, a second part to this, which shows an obligation that every single Christian has. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus takes this very, very seriously. Do you see how, the, just within the prayer, it just assumes that we are forgiving those around us. As we have forgiven our debtors the prayer says. And you can't have missed, as we had uh, the passage read these last three Sundays, the the very sobering lines of explanation that that come at the end of the Lord's Prayer. It's a bit of a, moment every time we've had it read and it gets to those verses. Verse 14, Jesus says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Serious stuff. So let me say a few things about that. First, um, this shows the extraordinary potential that Christianity has to change the world. You and I, people in general, don't naturally want to forgive each other. Uh, Spend any time with small children, you will very quickly notice that. Uh, It is not natural or instinctive to us to say sorry, to ever admit to being wrong. Take a room of small children, and there's a constant need to intervene, to separate, to tell a child to say sorry, to tell them to forgive each other, to tell them to give the toy back. Because otherwise, that little toddler society will break into toddler World War III, and parents all the time just trying to stop it. Forgiveness is essential to smooth running of society. Jesus isn't unique in noticing that. Lots of wise philosophers and teachers through the ages have observed that forgiveness is necessary to function as any kind of human society. But Jesus is the only one who can cause a forgiveness revolution in our world where others utterly fail. And the reason for that is that our forgiving of each other is utterly connected to God's forgiving of us. At the heart of our universe, Jesus says, is a God who reaches out to forgive people. And he expects us to forgive forgive others in return. He is very, very serious about that. Make no mistake in this passage. There should be no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. 
There should be no such thing as a Christian who bears grudges, who holds back on accepting an apology, who refuses to be willing to rebuild a broken relationship when the other person is willing. The tragic thing in that uh, story of the, the indebted man in Matthew 18, who had his multi-million pound debt cancelled by his master, is, uh, if you know the story, he, he went on and met another chap who owed him some money, just a few pounds, hardly anything and grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and marched him to prison. Now, his master that had let him off millions, what do you think? He's disgusted, absolutely disgusted with that man's behavior, quite understandably irate at his refusal to forgive as he'd been forgiven. And so that man himself was thrown into jail. Now, these verses are adamant about that. If, if we're not showing forgiveness to others, it's a worrying sign that perhaps we've never really understood or accepted or experienced God's forgiveness for ourselves. Which kind of leads us to a question, which comes first? Uh, God's forgiveness for me or my forgiveness for others, which comes first? Because you could read these verses and think, well, I've I've got to start it all. I've got to forgive other people and then God's going to forgive me. You could read the grammar of these verses and, and, and get that logic out of it. That would be a mistake, because that would to be forcing these verses to contradict everything else the Bible says about forgiveness. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's very clear, God's forgiveness is the first cause. He intervenes. He starts the forgiveness revolution. And only then are we freed to forgive as we've been forgiven. That, that's, that's the pattern the rest of the Bible gives us. These verses don't contradict that. They assume it. But they make the point that a forgiven Christian will forgive others. That is part of the definition of a Christian. And if you're not somebody who is beginning to forgive others, then perhaps perhaps you need to come to God for forgiveness yourself. It is hard, very hard, to forgive others. It was incredibly costly for our Father who sent his son Jesus to the cross to win our forgiveness. It is hard to forgive, but it changes the world. Uh, A few years ago, I found myself watching an episode of America's Hardest Prisons. Uh, Forgive me if you've heard me tell the story before. Some of the students might have done. Uh, This episode focused on a prisoner who was uh, absolutely terrifying. He terrified all the other prisoners. He terrified the staff uh, with his moods and his violence. He was was in there for murder, and there's no question he was guilty. But as the episode went on, a pretty extraordinary thing happened. This terrifying man became terrified. And the reason he was terrified is that the prison was was, uh, putting on a program, uh, a scheme, where criminals would sit down with their victims' families and talk about it. And this hardened, fearless man couldn't bear the thought of facing his victims' family. couldn't, Couldn't speak to the camera. So afraid was he about this meeting that was going to happen. And then the meeting took place, and it was one of the most powerful bits of TV that I've ever seen. Uh, The murdered man's mother sat down opposite her son's killer. And uh, the murderer tried to stammer out a few words, saying, uh, he he, he said to her, "I, I know you can't ever forgive me for what I've done. And she interrupted him. Very sternly and yet gently in that way that uh, African-American mothers uniquely can do. Um, And she said, stop talking right there. 
Yes, you killed my son, and I will never get over that. Never. But you need to know that I determined to forgive you a long time ago. That I've been ready to do that. And today, I will. And she went on to talk about her trust in her Father in Heaven, how her Heavenly Father had forgiven her for the part she played in the murder of his son. And that criminal said nothing else for the entire episode. Head in hands, tears streaming down his face. That is what Christ's forgiveness can do in this world. In so many situations, it can not just bring us together with God, but bring us together with one another. I read about uh, the Wycliffe Bible translators who uh, went to a town in Mexico uh, where the mayor of the town became a Christian through their, their ministry. But he was in a slightly tricky situation. This is less serious than the previous illustration. Um, his, this mayor's political opponents had recently tried to assassinate him. Uh, and he'd made plans to murder them before they could get to him. Uh, so what was he to do now that he'd come to Christ and received forgiveness? And he decided to, to buy three copies of the Bible and send them out to his three main enemies with a letter that said, In this book, I have learned to be forgiven by God and to forgive others in return. And I want you to read it so that you can forgive me for my sins against you. And then we can all become good friends. (laughs) Pray for forgiveness and pray that you will forgive and be forgiven by those around you. It is what our world needs so, so desperately. Forgiveness from God and then forgiveness with each other. Finally, Jesus says, third request, final request of the Lord's Prayer, to pray for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Praying for forgiveness, in a sense, looks back. This prayer looks forwards. If you'd listed your your top three needs this week, I don't know, would you have prayed this? Would you have prayed to avoid falling into temptation? The Lord's Prayer says that these three are your top three needs. Physical basics, God's forgiveness, and then his help to avoid falling into temptation. Those three things, your your top three needs this week. People have struggled a bit to understand this last request. Does it mean that God might lead us into temptation? And if so, what does that mean? Uh, Apparently a, a row broke out in France 50 years ago about a translation of the Lord's Prayer that upset people, uh, suggesting that God was somebody who uh, caused people to, to fall into sin. Uh, and I uh, gather it's only just been resolved this summer that they've dealt with the translation and sorted it up. But uh, what, what can we say biblically about this, about God leading us into temptation? What, what does that mean? A couple of verses to, uh, uh, to point out to you that, that help clarify this a lot, hopefully on the screen. Uh, from James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Let me add to that uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 
Let's try and put some things together from those two verses. Uh, Four things, just really quickly to run through. God does not tempt us in order to cause us to sin. James is very, very clear on that. But secondly, God permits temptation to come to everyone. 1 Corinthians is very clear on that. We should expect it and trust that God sovereignly intends that for our good, for us to respond the right way to it. Even if we or Satan, who we'll mention in a moment, intend that temptation for evil, God, if he brings, brings temptation into our life, intends it for good. More of that in a moment. Uh, third, God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, says 1 Corinthians 10. In other words, giving in to temptation is never inevitable. Never. Uh, if you've seen Oscar Wilde's story or, or read the book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Lord Henry advises Dorian Gray, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows thick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. At times that can feel really true, can't it? It's not true. God himself says in any given situation, giving in to temptation is not inevitable. You can walk away with his strength. So, fourth thing, God will provide a way of escape. That's a promise in 1 Corinthians 10. God will provide a way of escape. So temptation itself is not a sin. We're told that Jesus himself was tempted many, many times in every way and yet was without sin. But God may permit temptations in our lives and our prayer should be, lead us not into temptation. With the emphasis on into. Lead me not into the temptation. Help me not to give in, Lord, when I'm going through temptation. Lead me through temptation safely. Lead me out of temptations. Please don't lead me into temptations as they come. As I put it to uh, the kids in our morning service a couple of weeks ago, Lord, please help me not to be naughty even when I really, really want to be naughty. That is what this prayer is saying. (laughs) So think about this coming week. Where are the temptations likely to be for you this coming week? Is it uh, time alone on a computer where pornography is just a a click away? Is it time when uh, alcohol might be involved? Is it time with a person that you're drawn to in inappropriate ways? Or time with a person who provokes you to anger or gossip or jealousy or pride? Let's face it, most of these things are features of all of our lives. Most weeks. We need God's help. And we need not to be naive. The second half of this request says, but deliver us from the evil one. Don't be naive about evil. It is both real and personal, says the Bible. Satan is spoken of throughout the Bible, sometimes called the tempter. And his tactics haven't changed since his first outing in Genesis 3. Satan will continue to whisper in our ears, God's just a spoil sport. Don't listen to him. He hasn't got your best in mind. He's just old-fashioned, restrictive. Come on, this is only a little sin. No one will know. You deserve it. You'll enjoy it. It'll cheer you up. Satan speaks through some of our modern slogans. Be who you want to be. Do whatever you want to do. Follow your heart regardless of how destructive or wrong it is to others or in God's sight. You can't see Satan saying these things to you. You're not going to 
hear a whisper in your ears and then see a, a flick of red coat and a cackle and uh, a couple of horns as he cackles off down the road. But he's like, he's like that guy in, in every school who can somehow persuade the most upright kids to do the naughty things against their better judgment. It's very serious, and we're called to resist him. Don't be naive. But how are we to resist him? Well, by praying, by taking hold of our Lord's help. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you pray this prayer this week, what difference will it make? Well, let me tell you, I have hugely benefited from praying this prayer in these last few days and weeks as I've prepared for tonight. Uh, I find that if you begin or end a day genuinely praying from the heart, Lord, lead me not into temptation, then effectively you are saying to God and to yourself, falling into sin today, this week, is not what I want. Lord, hurting others in my conversation is not what I want. Giving into pornography or to that person I find attractive, that is not what I want, Lord. Please lead me away from that. Laziness, lies, lack of love, those are not things that I I want today, this week. Lord, please help me to be clear on that. Help me to look out for those temptations when they come. Please give me the strength to keep walking through that temptation rather than uh, stopping and, and going in to that temptation. It really helps, from my experience, just these last few days, to reset your desires if you pray this prayer, so that you're not fuzzy and go out into your day just ready to cave in. And also pray this prayer when you've given in to temptation. It is so easy to think when you've given in to temptation, oh, well, I've messed up once. What difference does it make if I mess up again now? It makes all the difference. You're in danger of falling into a repeated pattern. And the more a habit grows, the harder and harder and harder it will be to break. So if you've sinned just once, stop. Come to God for forgiveness. But don't just stop there. Don't just ask God for forgiveness. Especially in those times, pray this prayer. Say to God, please lead me not into temptation. Ask him to make you super sensitive to the things that will make you trip up again. More sensitive than you were last time when you caved in. And of course, pray this prayer when temptation feels absolutely overwhelming. When when its force seems irresistible and you, you just don't feel like resisting it. In those times, listen to whatever is left of your conscience. And one of the best things you could possibly do is pray this prayer. If you can possibly muster up the conscience to do it, say, okay, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Uh, Your will be done. Give me bread. Forgive my debts. Please, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lead me out of this. Please, help me to walk away right now. These three enormous needs for us. Provision, pardon, protection. So let's finish. What do you really need today? What should you come to your father for? (laughs) Lots and lots of things, no doubt. Uh, But top of the list are these three. Provision, pardon, protection. Or if you like, Lord, please feed me. Please forgive me. Please defend me. You cannot meet these needs yourself. 
You're utterly dependent on God. So go to your father and speak to him. Because he cares. And he longs to meet your needs. And he can. He's able to do far more than you imagine. So let's pray and ask him now. Father, how amazing that you care. That you long to hear us come to you with our our deepest needs. That you care about the tiniest details about our lives, our physical needs. That you care about our greatest spiritual needs, our, our need for forgiveness. And you care about our future. You long for us to ask you for help in battling temptation, in walking away from it. Lord, we're idiots when we don't pray these things because we have no power, no strength, no determination to do these things or to achieve these things for ourselves. We have no ability. So, Lord, help us to come to you, to know you as our loving Father in heaven who cares and is able to provide for our needs. Please provide for us, Lord. Provide our needs. Help us to have a good assessment of what they are, not to come to you in greed, but to ask for what we really need. Please help us to come to you for forgiveness, Lord, to never think we can move on from that, but to love coming to you and, and speaking to you and, and receiving that free forgiveness that casts our sins to the depths of the ocean. Please help us to come to you for protection, Lord, Every day, every day we fall. Every day there are temptations around us. Every day the devil prowls like a roaring lion. We need you so much. Please help us to call on you when we need you most. Please lead us away from temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.